From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He's led the Denver police for the past four years. He's been with the department for nearly 30. But more recently, it's the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd that have been on Paul Pazin's mind. We fully support peaceful protests and have a long history of doing that. This one was different and, um, you know, it was visceral in a lot of ways. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry asks about the highs and the lows, the rise in crime, and what's next as Pazin steps down. Then Purplish explains a measure before voters this election. It's one that stands out for many, affordable housing. We think this is the first time housing's ever been on the ballot statewide in Colorado, and we know it's a critical moment. I appreciate all the programming at CPR, and I'm especially appreciative of the local and statewide focus. And I can't imagine my day without the news feed. It just means everything to me to give me the news in a way that is surrounded by mindfulness. And I just love supporting a local cause. Thank you for joining the generous team of donors that help make Colorado Public Radio possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Former Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin says every day he thinks about the protests that gripped the city after the murder of George Floyd. Pazin's last day on the job was Saturday. He spoke with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. How has it been being a police chief? This has been an honor of a lifetime. It really has. For somebody that grew up in Denver, born at at Denver General Hospital, raised by a single mom in North Denver, graduate of Denver Public Schools, somebody who has lived in Denver my entire life, other than when the Marine Corps said, no, Denver's not a duty station. Uh, You're going to do, you're going to live where we send you to live. So uh, absolutely love this city. Uh, Being a police officer, very few professions have a direct impact on a community the way a police officer does. Every single day, a police officer is interacting with members of our community and they can help the situation or if they uh, don't get it right, they can uh, sometimes exacerbate a problem and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I truly feel that I've been extremely fortunate. I want to thank uh, the women and men of this uh, department, the sworn officers, our professional staff now as well as in the past because you don't get here by yourself. Uh, I certainly have had some great mentors that have helped, community mentors, family members that have been very supportive. Who are your mentors? On the personal side, I definitely have to give both my mother and my grandmother credit, right? My grandmother, she set the tone. Many of her kids and grandkids are all about service. So my grandmother raised two daughters in public housing. She pulled herself up by her bootstraps, and she always gave back to the community. And uh, that's what most folks in our family have continued, that uh, you can 
help people through a life of, of service. And my mother did the same thing with the Denver Housing Authority and getting people into affordable housing or rebuilding many of the developments that we see today in a new model. Uh, one thing that uh, we have, as a society have learned is that concentrated poverty is not good. So that dispersed model where you don't stigmatize folks that need a little bit of help and you, you provide that approach. So on the personal side, it's certainly my grandmother, my mother, raised by a single mom in, in North Denver. That's, uh, that's tough, you know, during uh, some very challenging times. Uh, so she deserves just a, a ton of credit. And then on the job, I've had some great supervisors, some great command officers that uh, I've been able to learn from, uh, some great peers that we continue to, to work together in order to do this uh, very difficult job. You know, it's always struck me that chiefs have sort of interesting jobs because you report to, what, three or four different sets of people. You report to the community. You're sort of the outward-facing person who answers the questions from the community. You're reporting to the mayor, sort of. I mean, I, I know you act autonomously. You're not, like, checking in with him every day or anything. But you have to answer when he is taking heat from the community about some decision or something that happened. And you're reporting also to your own staff. You've got your own sworn officers. I mean, obviously, you're their boss, but you have to answer and try to meet their needs if they've got concerns, if they're upset, or if they're getting vilified. So how is that on a day-to-day basis? And especially, how was that in 2020 and 2021 after the George Floyd protests? The last couple of years have been some of the most difficult times in our history, uh, both uh, modern history that we can remember and even beyond. The police department's been around 162 years. We have gone through a global pandemic before in 1918, 1919. Uh, We have gone through tough economic times with the Great Depression in the 1930s and the Great Recession in 2008. Uh, We've gone through some very tough uh, political times. If we think back to the late 60s and and the political divide in our country, there's some similarities in this. And uh, we certainly have also dealt with a lot of scrutiny and challenges towards the police department with community trust and and, uh, how we interact with our community. Um, All of that spans that 162 years. However, no generation of of police officers and professional staff had to do that all at the same time. And really, over the last two years, we've been dealing with some of these extraordinary circumstances that have made this already difficult job even more challenging. What has been your high point, the absolute high point, and what has been the low, the very lowest point that you can think of? Um, well, there, there's uh, many highs. Uh, you know, getting the job was, was a big deal, as I indicated. Uh, some of the programs that I'm exceptionally proud of are, are programs that really helped uh, move the needle for law enforcement, not just here in Denver or not just here in Colorado, but uh, across the country. First among those would be the STAR program. I'm proud of how we led to get this initiative up and running. Uh, this was started when I was a commander in District 1, uh, working closely with the community and getting uh, this alternative response model that 
folks had never even heard of before the murder of George Floyd. Uh, That is something that I'm very proud of. Uh, The um, firearms assault team that we have created that looks at non-fatal shootings, we have increased clearance rates at almost double what they used to be. And this is something that many departments have replicated across the country. The uh, reintegration program, so officer wellness and resiliency when officers are dealing with uh, a traumatic situation, uh, a a critical incident, Mm -hmm. to uh, take a a wellness perspective for that officer so we have better success as we bring those officers back from very traumatic incidences is also something that's been replicated across the country. And so some of those areas, the outreach case coordinators, the continuum of care, uh, some of those types of, of programs, I am very uh, proud of. I would I would count those as uh, some of the the highs uh, throughout that nearly 28 years of uh, service in the Denver Police Department. Let, let's talk about the low points. I think um, the part that hurts, right, particularly somebody who has always considered himself as as Denver as it gets, right. I mean, I love this city. I love the people. So, you know, one of the, the, the tough parts was uh, what happened in other cities, that it could stretch the fabric that holds us together, that it could tear at that fabric that holds us together, and that it created a divide. And, and I, uh, I'm, I'm confident that that divide is going to heal. I'm confident that we are going to come together, that, that uh, we realize how important uh, safety is within our community, and we recognize how important those relationships are within in our community with regards to policing and uh, the, the people uh, of this city. So just the fact that it that it got as divided as, as it did uh, when in many ways we had a, a long history of working together to address big problems. I mean, that's what the people of Denver have done historically. That's what the people of Colorado have done historically is when we face big challenges that we uh, all pitch in and say, how do we get this fixed? And it just seemed like this divide that um, we're still in a little bit was uh, something that I think was was avoidable. You're talking about the George Floyd murder and then the protests, the subsequent protests around the city. DPD has paid out a lot of settlements on those. There's been a lot of criticism on how DPD and the other officers, I know there are other agencies here too, Responded. Is there anything that you would have done differently? Um, you know, I certainly think of uh, that time period uh, nearly every day uh, since it's really? happened. Oh, I, I certainly do. I remember very vividly May 28th through June 1st of 2020, and I think about it quite often. Uh, Um, Certainly there are areas for improvement, and we've uh, rededicated the training side of things to ensure that any of the lessons learned uh, won't be replicated in the future. But I also want to point out that this was something that we've never seen before, not not as a city, but something that the country hadn't seen to this extent, or even the world. There were some significant protests across the globe. But really, I think uh, the best thing that we can do as a society is come together so that we don't have uh, that type of uh, situation in the future. 
I just want to make sure I understand what type of situation are you talking about? Just people... Well, we fully support uh, peaceful protests and, and have a long history of doing that. Um, this one was different and, um, you know, it was visceral in a lot of ways and, and people saw something that uh, was absolutely horrible on video, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. And what I can say uh, is that we've demonstrated a commitment to enhancing our training to make sure that we could learn from from those lessons. Uh, but I think the better way is, is truly community coming together, recognizing that we ultimately all want the same thing, the same goal, a, a better life for our families, a better life for our kids, uh, you know, success for uh, our neighborhoods. And, and uh, I think that the more we come together, the less likelihood some of those horrible tragedies or challenging situations, we can prevent them. Do you feel like you've made any mistakes as chief? I'll go back to May 28th through June 1st of of 2020. Um, You know, I I do know that... uh, when I made the decision, uh, when I was able to connect with some of the folks that were marching in uh, our city, that, you know, recognizing that that helped uh, defuse the situation. Um, and we didn't have any violent protests after. I uh, had the great privilege of, of marching with uh, some of the protesters. I, I guess, you know, maybe... Maybe if I'd have done that a day earlier, two days earlier, or something like that, uh, maybe that could have helped. Building relationships with those people, mending some of the distrust with police before this even happened, you would have maybe done that a little bit earlier. You're exactly right. I, I think we just need to look for proactive, preventive ways to prevent those tragedies from occurring in the first place. Outgoing Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin speaking with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. When we come back, the rise in crime and what's next for Pazin. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado voters have lots of decisions to make this November. Who will head the state as governor? Who will represent us in the U.S. House and Senate? And the ballot also has questions on everything from psychedelics to school lunches. Follow CPR's in-depth election coverage from our public affairs team, stories and conversations from around the state and from Washington, D.C. Listen every day to CPR News, and for even more coverage, come to CPR.org. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin's last day on the job was Saturday. He's been with the department for nearly 30 years. Let's get back to his conversation with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. She asked Pazin about the recent rise in crime. The city of Denver and its 735,000 residents, they don't drive the entire crime rate for the state of Colorado, which has nearly 6 million people. And the issues that we see in Denver are not exclusive to, to just this city. And we've been a remarkably safe state for so long. And uh, the state has uh, significant challenges when we go from the, the middle of the road or baseline in the country for auto theft to number one in the country in a few short years, that's not a police department forgetting how to police. Uh, one, this is much bigger than one police department or one police chief. Uh, when, when we're number two in the country for 
property crimes when we're number four in the country for total crimes as a state. Mm -hmm. Um, It just means that we need to raise awareness on the issue. And we have to come together all aspects of that criminal justice system, the police department or representatives from the police, the representatives from the prosecutors, public defenders, judges, the uh, legislative folks, uh, as well as some of the the people that are on the back end, uh, parole, probation, pretrial, and say, wait, how do we create a safer Colorado for ourselves, our families, and more importantly, our kids and grandkids in the future? And there is a, a clear path forward. We can learn from successes in other places because um, many of the driving factors to some of uh, these changes are about an injustice with uh, the fact that uh, the United States, which represents only 4 or 5% of the world's population, yet has 25% of the incarceration rate uh, of the globe. I'm confident, and there's new research that shows that we can improve public safety, reduce that incarceration rate, and do it for about the same amount of money. So that's something that I'm very excited about, that I think folks on the left, folks on the right, and everybody in the middle would be happy if we could improve public safety and enhance safety within our neighborhoods and our cities and uh, reduce that population, the incarceration population, be more successful on recidivism, on uh, supporting people, uh, preventing the crime from occurring in the first place. I think that's something that all sides of the aisle could agree on, and there is a path forward. So are you running for mayor? Um, Well, thank you for the question. Um, I want to have the the, the biggest impact moving forward to help our community and um, evaluating what those possibilities are. I do recognize that Crime has a a big part of our economic vibrancy, that it impacts uh, education, that it impacts the uh, affordable housing and uh, the safety of people that are homeowners and and, uh, renters in in our community. And I just want to have that positive impact moving forward, whether I'm... uh, heavily involved in in the face of something or behind the scenes trying to address these issues. I mean, you're not answering the yes or no, you're running for mayor. So it sounds like you are thinking about it. Is that fair? I I truly am uh, just thinking, how can I have a positive impact moving forward uh, for the the people of the city and the people of the state of Colorado? These are big issues. I I want us to have a... a You have a public job now where you're solving problems every day. Why would you leave it now? Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, uh, law enforcement in many ways are problem solvers. Uh, the, the, the single police officer that's handling a call for service right now, mm-hmm. they're solving problems. And uh, throughout your career, you become uh, a problem solver of bigger uh, issues. And and it was a, a year or so ago when I was looking at the data of, wait a minute, these issues are bigger than a single police chief, right? They're bigger than a single police department. And raising awareness was my goal and continues to be my goal, that uh, we can solve these issues if we do it in a holistic way, if we do it in a collaborative way. It sounds like you're not retiring to go spend time on a golf course. It sounds like you want to go do something after this. Golf sounds uh, really good as well. (laughs) Maybe you'll do some golfing. (laughs) 
yeah, just just evaluating uh, any and all of it. Um, I'm excited about the future, not only for this police department. I'm very excited uh, about uh, our city. This is uh, a good time uh, to to really look towards the future and and uh, really uh, come out of these very difficult uh, two two and a half years that cities across the country have faced. And I'm excited that the state can do the same thing. You know, we've got some challenges. Let's get those fixed so that way everybody feels safe to cross the street to go to the park, that they feel safe to go to to work, whether work is downtown, the tech center, or any corner of the state. Paul Pazin recently stepped down as Denver's police chief after four years on the job. He announced his resignation in August. His last day was Saturday. He spoke with CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry. Read more from our interview at denverite.com. When we come back, the affordable housing issue, voters will decide this election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the 1800s, people came to Colorado in droves to find gold, but more people came to get rid of something, tuberculosis. Until a vaccine for TB was available in the 1920s, physicians prescribed Colorado's clean, dry mountain air and sunshine to treat what was then the nation's leading cause of death. Patients, including poet Robert Frost and gambler Doc Holliday, came in the hundreds, then the thousands. Sanatoriums sprang up across the state, some of which later became hospitals. Playgrounds appeared as kids were sent outdoors into healthy air. Women shortened skirts so hems wouldn't drag in dirty streets. Men cut beards thought to carry germs. And Colorado's population exploded from 40,000 in 1870 to more than a million in 1930. As historian Jean Abrams put it, they came for health, not wealth. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. Ballots for the November election are being mailed to voters this week. Coloradans increasingly name affordable housing as a top issue, and it's one they'll decide this election. Let's join public affairs reporters Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Earlier this year, I joined a family on their house hunting journey, and it really actually opened up my eyes in a way I wasn't expecting. I was joining a local realtor, Miguel Ceballos, and his clients and their son. Alpedia Sanchez cleans offices, and she has a law degree in Mexico. Her husband, Jaime Salinas, is a framer for a construction company. They were renting at the time in Commerce City. They had wanted to move for years. I don't like Commerce City. You don't like Commerce City? For refiner- refinery? Yeah, the refinery. Mm-hmm. No. You, you worry about uh-huh. the pollution? For- yes. They were checking out a place in Thornton, and it would have been somewhat stretching their budget at $350,000, but they had high hopes. Here's their realtor, Miguel. You know, we were coming in here hoping that, you know, there was just a couple of cosmetic issues. But what they found were countless holes in the drywall, destroyed tiles, smoke-stained walls, and signs of major structural repairs in the basement. This might have been level when they built it, and so there might have been some additional settlement. Now, at this point, Alpedia and Jaime had seen 20 homes, and number 21 was obviously not going to be the one for them. Well, this home needs thousands and thousands of dollars of repairs just to be habitable. Miguel expected that a cash investor would snatch it up and flip it for an even higher price instead. It was an example of just how hard it can be to find a home in the most affordable segments of the market in Colorado. And it was thoroughly discouraging. 
Mm, I don't know. <laughs> every time, every day, is, I think it's more hard to find something. Now, the market has turned somewhat in the months since I did this interview, but the issue is not going away. Housing is something we've heard about over and over from voters for years. And this year, for really the first time ever, they have an opportunity to vote about it on the statewide level. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about politics, policy, and right now the 2022 elections. I'm Andrew Kenny, and I'm about to turn hosting duties over to my colleague, Benta Berkland. Thanks, Andy. So you just said that this year could be one of the most important elections ever for housing in Colorado. Yeah. So why is that? And what could really change for, for families that are searching for a house they can actually afford? Well, first of all, the family we just heard from is far from alone. I, I know it gets like old hearing about how bad the housing market's been, mm-hmm. but the market here in Colorado has gone from, I would say, like boiling to almost exploding at times. Median home prices are up 34% compared to 2018. Rents have seen a similar increase. Wow. Right now, over the last couple months, the market's kind of hitting the brakes a little bit uh, with all the changes in interest rates and stuff, but it remains really, really tough to find a place to buy or afford a place to rent in this state. We've been out the last few months talking to people about the issues they care about. Mm-hmm. And pretty much from all of the voters we've talked to, cost of living is the top issue. Yeah. And housing is obviously one of the biggest parts of that. It's not necessarily the topic that's in all the ads and flyers you're starting to see every day. I, I don't think I've seen anything in my mailbox about housing in particular, but it is going to be on your ballot when that shows up in your mailbox because we've got one very big ballot measure and one very notable political candidate that are both starting to talk about housing in a new way, at least for Colorado, this year. So, Andy, I know you've been looking into a a lot of this, Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about that ballot measure, what it tries to do, what are some of the concerns people have about it, and how the topic of housing overall is going to play in some of the key statewide political races. Yeah, and the big picture takeaway from it all is that Colorado's government and leaders, I can tell you now, are trying to envision a state where families like the Sanchez Salinases can actually afford to live. And they're approaching some big decisions. There's some big contrasts, too, about how they might achieve that. This housing initiative is Proposition 123. That's what people will see on their ballots. The title is Dedicate State Income Tax Revenue for Affordable Housing. Yep. So it sounds kind of straightforward, but yet very complicated. (laughs) So um, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Anything on a Colorado ballot involving tax revenue is going to get complicated. Mm -hmm. The first notable thing, though, I want to say is that as far as I know, we've never really seen anything like this in Colorado. Here's Mike Johnston, former state legislator who is heading up the campaign. We think this is the first time housing's ever been on the ballot statewide in Colorado. And we know it's a critical moment for us to make sure that teachers and nurses and firefighters have places to live in our communities. And so what what people are seeing when they're pulling out their ballot or they have their blue book guide, it says that this initiative would spend income taxes on affordable housing. How does that work? All right. You asked. The first thing to know is that it doesn't actually directly increase your taxes. Your tax rate's not going to go up if this is approved. What it does, though, is it requires the state to spend some of the money it's already collecting uh, in the amount of hundreds of millions of dollars per year 
on different types of various housing programs. And so what type of programs does it list exactly where it would go? It does, although it remains to be seen exactly how some of this stuff will work out in the real world. But it covers the gamut from, you know, lots of money for your kind of traditional affordable housing programs, which is mostly rental buildings with subsidized rent, as well as programs directly for homelessness. But then it also tries to broaden the reach of the state's housing effort with some stuff uh, that would, you know, for example, help families that are trying to buy their first homes. So like the the family we had talked about at the top of this episode. Yeah, they could get down payment assistance, for example. Then there's also these kind of indirect strategies that are supposed to just make it easier to build more affordable housing and more housing in general. That would be stuff like subsidizing these factories that put together modular housing, which is quicker and cheaper to build, or encouraging cities to streamline their permitting process and just make it easier to build affordable housing in particular and also housing of all sorts. I think this will be the most innovative approach to affordable housing in the country. We had a lot of national interest from people who want to see this replicate in other states because it allows us to both set ambitious targets for affordable housing, give local governments control over how to get there, and address the entire continuum of need from those who are unhoused up to rentals, up to home ownership. All right, cool. You got all that right? Yeah, of course. No problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to vote now. But I, I think it's complicated. How does this initiative kind of interact with what the state's already done? More, 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 more is what it does. This would really raise the baseline of what the state spends every year up to about like $270 million in the first full year, it's estimated. That's anywhere from tripling to even quintupling what the state was spending on housing before the pandemic. And it's really remarkable when you put it in context and go, you know, 10 years back, it's like many, many times over what the state was spending back in the 2010s. So just fair to say that this housing issue wasn't a state priority mm-hmm. about a decade ago just b- because there wasn't an issue to this degree. Yeah, and we'll get more into this later, but it was it really fell to the cities until very recently. So now we're seeing through this and other measures, states getting involved. Andy, you said this isn't a tax increase. So that means we don't have new money coming into the state that will be allocated for housing. So is this going to take money away from other priorities? Oh, it's complicated. Come on, it's Colorado. Um <laughs> What this measure tries to do is, I've been calling it like a magic trick, trying to come up with a bunch of money, like you're saying, without actually increasing taxes. How do you do that? I'm sure a lot of people would like to know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and the truth is you never get free money, unless you're the federal government, and even that comes to the questions. But the first big thing that this does is um, it doesn't raise taxes, but it takes money out of, you ready for this, out of the tax refunds that Colorado taxpayers often get or sometimes get. That's when the state collects more money than it's allowed to mm-hmm. and refunds some of that money to residents. I think a lot of people may be familiar with it. Yep. Uh, $750, a lot of people receive those checks over the summer, fall. That's right. So if you can imagine, there's that big pool of money that is above and beyond what the state can collect and they're having to give that back as refunds normally. For example, next year, it's expected to be more than $2 billion of refunds. Now, under this measure, though, the state would get to go to that pool of billions of dollars that's going to get refunded. And before the checks get written, they get to scoop in there and take out the $270 million for housing. So that money doesn't then get refunded. It reduces the size of the refund and instead dedicates that refund money to housing. I feel like over the years, we've seen a variety of groups unsuccessfully try to take some of this excess Tabor money and use it for other things. 
Well, it's hard. People like refunds. I don't think anybody like is really that upset when 750 bucks shows up in their mailbox. Well, you know, Democrats are running on those refund checks right now. That's right. The Colorado cashback. They've branded it. And as you can guess, a lot of conservatives are criticizing this measure as a tax hike in disguise, because even if you're not paying more on the front end, the government is keeping more of your money, less money for you, more money for the government. And then we're also hearing, this is interesting, concerns from Democrats, Democrats who work on the budget, who may agree that this is an important priority, that we should spend this money on housing, but they're worried about what happens in the years that we don't have Tabor refunds. Where does the money come from then? That's right. There are a lot of years where the state is not growing Mm -hmm. by a significant amount and is nowhere near this what's called Tabor cap. So refunds aren't going out. That is a really good point. What happens when there isn't the money there? What happens if this proposition passes? They have to then, I guess in theory, go get this affordable housing money from the pool of money that pays for everything else. It's no longer basically free money to the government that they were going to lose anyway. Now it's competing with education and roads and schools. Hmm. Just the state budget. It's going to come out of the general state budget. That's right. And to put things in perspective, you know, $270 million a year, that's like maybe half what it costs to run the whole state court system. So not small change in the state budget. No, no, not too small. Um, And there's also a second criticism we've heard from lawmakers who work on the budget, which is that when you lock spending rules into the state budget, there can be unintended consequences where if we look back uh, in the 2000s, I think it was voters in the state did something similar with education funding, passed this constitutional amendment, says that the state has to increase school spending by a certain amount of money per year. But, you know, then when times got bad, the legislature just couldn't afford to do it and ended up kind of ignoring the whole rule. So there's a, a question of whether this would actually work in practice. We hear a lot of discussions about that at the state capitol when very complex policy is kind of locked in at a state ballot level. Uh-huh. There's a lot less fluidity and flexibility when the dynamics of the economy and a whole host of things change. You know, that's what lawmakers are at the capitol to, to deal with are those policy questions. So this I can see that that would be a strong criticism from folks who are concerned about this. Well, this is what happens when you try to do the magic trick. There's always side effects. Yeah, exactly. Well, all this finance aside and the budget magic tricks and everything, Uh what do you think the odds are that this will actually pass this November? I don't know, because at first I thought, what are they doing? Why are they running this in a midterm election? Housing seems like more of a liberal priority, at least in my mind, or at least big infrastructure spending does. And Republicans are supposed to do relatively well this year as a more conservative electorate in the midterms. And also, I mean, conservatives are very strong supporters of Tabor. Right. But Democrats like Governor Jared Polis are running on giving refund checks Tabor refund checks to voters this cycle. Yeah. Other Democrats are campaigning on this right now. Yeah. So tough year to kind of go against Tabor refunds. But when I asked Mike Johnston, uh, again, who's involved with the campaign, he contended that this is really reaching a crisis point and that housing is not a partisan issue right now. The, the cry from Coloradans is deafening on the importance of this issue. I mean, it now is five times more urgent of an issue for voters than education is right now. We know that we've seen a huge set of crisis through the pandemic, but this cost of living issue is the one that is crippling Coloradans and it is in the way of every opportunity people have. 
And he's referring there to some polling they'd done, I think through the Colorado Health Foundation that found, again, that cost of living and affordable housing were way up there as the top concerns, and which we, we also found. So maybe he has a point. Maybe people will see this and be concerned about housing and decide to go for it. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I think he's 100 percent right that voters are worried about housing and affordability. Mm-hmm. But the question is, you know, there's a myriad of, of ways to address that. And is this going to be the way people feel is most appropriate to address this? Using something like a proposition to kind of tie the hand of state lawmakers and the government when it comes to spending. And like I mentioned earlier, having that flexibility. And if you look at recent elections, how frequently ballot measures fail, Mm -hmm. especially when it's complicated, it may suggest that voters are are getting more cautious. On the other hand, though, if we look back just two years to 2020, do you remember the paid family leave initiative? That was a very costly initiative, at least relative to some other proposals in the billions. It comes with a fee that's going to hit most workers for a percentage of their income. And yet it passed with flying colors. And I think that could be Similar to this, where paid family leave was an issue affecting tons and tons of people across Colorado, people wanted to see it addressed, and here comes this proposal that offers a way to do it, and that also, I should add, neither of them have the language that says, oh, shall taxes be increased by $100 bajillion? Instead, they were both written on the ballot in a way that de-emphasized the cost, or, or didn't put it you know front and center, at least. Yeah, I see what you're saying, although I think there's... Obviously, uncertainty on this, but paid family leave, from my perspective, was more straightforward, hmm. a more linear, like, here's the cost, here's what you're paying, and here's what you're going to get. people could see a direct benefit, whereas they might not be so sure. Well, I mean, when you're talking about Tabor refund checks and rebates and then state budget, I mean, there's just so many moving parts to this. It's a really interesting question. I'm just not sure. Uh, I went out door knocking with some campaign members the other day, and they definitely met lots of people who... Yeah, we're interested in housing as an issue, wanted to see something done. And they also got lots of tough questions from some voters about, well, how is this going to work? How does this affect taxes and Tabor? So we'll see just uh, how the Colorado electorate feels about this. All right, just to summarize, this ballot proposal is a significant increase in funding. Uh, It's the kind of thing that historically hasn't passed at the polls in Colorado, standing up big new government spending. But voters have gone for some other pretty ambitious funding changes, like implementing paid family leave, as long as they don't directly increase taxes. So will voters take a bite and, and try to look at this as a solution to one of the state's biggest problems? You tell me. Andy, you've been reporting on how various candidates are talking about housing and specifically the gubernatorial candidates. Yeah. Yeah. And the first thing is they're not necessarily rushing out to talk about it. You're not going to necessarily, again, see it in the ads, not that big on the websites or on their debates. But when I asked both Heidi Ganahl and Jared Polis, the two candidates for governor, Jared Polis being the sitting governor, have said that housing is really important and they were pretty eager to talk about it. So it's important. They're not necessarily campaigning on it. Is it just it's not the most kind of enticing issue that draws people in? Yeah, I'm not sure if they they maybe see crime or abortion as a little more visceral and understandable. Housing is what I would call high hanging fruit, like a coconut, Mm. you know, like at the top of the tree, because it's um, it's hard to explain. It's technical um, and 
it's not clear that anybody's really got a solution or a handle on it. Andy, I just have to say that comparing housing to a coconut is not the analogy I was expecting. It's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> it's a coconut <laughs> nut. All right. So um, to summarize it, you know, Heidi and all the Republican had some broad ideas, I would say, about, you know, encouraging cities to allow more development and helping them innovate. She didn't have too detailed of a policy plan on this. And then Jared Polis, when we asked him about it on a couple of occasions, kind of made it seem like it was a secret centerpiece almost of his mm. platform for a second term, saying it would be one of the top focuses and that we need to start dealing now with these housing problems. Mm-hmm. It's like growth is a good thing for a state, but also has downsides too. Yeah, he came on Colorado Matters. And like you're saying, he kind of gave himself credit for creating the growth that led to the problem. Well, look, I, I can't help it if we've made Colorado an even more amazing place to live and the secret's out. And the truth is we have with preschool and kindergarten, with uh, saving people money. We have people from you know across the country and across the world who say, look, Governor Polis' success story in Colorado is something we want to be a part of. And that creates its own challenges like housing. Well, that's certainly one way to put it. Yep. Look at Governor Polis' success story, as well as uh, not to mention 40 years of growth before Polis came into office as well. So what does Polis say he would do? What could he do, given that housing is sort of a local issue, not necessarily a state issue? Uh, Polis has said that uh, our current approach to development and to affordable housing uh, is broken. He's used that word. And he's saying that the big problem is that we've just not built enough housing of all types and especially regular market rate dense housing to keep up with the population growth. And so he wants Colorado to embrace some of the ideas that you might hear from uh, people called Yimbies, mm. you know, the Yes in My Backyarders. Oh. Polis is talking about how to just build more housing in general. So I think we need the courage of our convictions and we need to act boldly and we need to act now and sooner or else we'll be acting after the fact. Now, finally, states like California and Oregon are looking at housing and doing something about it. And you see some of the measures they're doing around accessory dwelling units and density around transit corridors. And Colorado can do that now under our leadership, or we can simply step aside, avoid conflict, wait 10 years and do it after homes cost a million dollars right here in Colorado. So let's say Polis wins re-election. Mm-hmm. He implements whatever plan he wants to implement. How how would that impact the places where Coloradans live? You know, what would change? Well, he said that he wants to play a much bigger role in encouraging cities to have that kind of dense development around transit that he wants to see. He hasn't said exactly how we'll do that, but I would look at, you know, suburbs like Lakewood and Golden where they have light rail lines, Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily have like a lot of density around those light rail lines. And actually both of those cities have annual growth caps limiting how much can be built. Mm -hmm. And I think that Polis would want to start finding ways to push those cities to allow density. I'm not sure exactly how he would do it. The other thing that he said is that he doesn't really want to see more exurbs, which is like the, you know, the suburbs of the suburbs, the spread out Mm-hmm. single-family developments. Uh, I would think of a place like Franktown or Castle Rock or a lot of Douglas County where there's just seas of single-family homes built in the last decade, thousands of them. Um, I'm not sure what he would do there either, but could he try to, for example, influence water policy to make it harder to grow out rather than up? Well, I've been covering the state capital for a while now, and I, I know that cities and counties just have so much power yeah. at the state house, And they generally try to keep state lawmakers out of their business. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like Polis maybe directly would would challenge that. Yeah, that does seem to be what he's saying. 
to your point, historically, almost everything to do with development and growth has been controlled at the city level via the zoning code. And Polis is saying, well, maybe the state should have a louder voice or stronger role in that conversation. And doing that would mean moving into the decisions that the local governments have historically gotten to make. Well, look, local communities decide what gets built where, but there's a lot of levers the state have, both on the carrot and the stick side, about making sure that we're doing this in a thoughtful, interjurisdictional manner. Because the truth is, I'm a strong supporter of local control, but where the decisions of one community affect the quality of life in a neighboring community or a community across town, that's where we really need to look at this as an interjurisdictional and statewide manner. And housing fits squarely into that category. So what, what does Polis want the state to do? But you heard him use the words carrot and stick, Mm -hmm. those two classic government metaphors. So carrot would be incentives, grants, money for cities with pro-density policies, encourage them. And then he mentioned the sticks, which you could imagine would be penalties or mandates. And again, has avoided saying exactly what kind of stick he might have in his back pocket. What's been the response from local governments? I imagine not thrilled. Yeah, we uh, heard from the Colorado Municipal League's head, Kevin Bomber, about this. Uh, He tweeted, there are so many things that are wrong here that a full response via Twitter is not possible. The governor of Colorado and the legislature have roles to play. Acting like a mayor and a city council isn't one of them. And that was in response to some of Polis' earlier comments along these lines. Mm. And otherwise, you know, this does split in kind of weird ways. You'll find Republicans and Democrats who will oppose this because they support local control They know that their population in their city might kind of freak out if you start encouraging density. And you'll find Republicans and Democrats who support it because they believe in free enterprise or they believe that we should just build more housing. I think uh, unlike some of the big issues we cover at the Capitol, this isn't one where there's the clearly defined partisan lines. Yeah, There's some crossover like you were talking about. So for Polis and his Republican opponent, Heidi Ganahl, Have you noticed that as well, that they're not on these clearly opposite sides of this housing issue? Yeah, and that's why I find this topic so interesting, is that people don't always know what ideological corner they need to run to when you talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. So they tend to engage with it. Ganahl is also interested in dense, efficient housing. She brought up the idea that sometimes, uh, like Polo says, city rules, zoning policies can make it hard to build dense, efficient housing. But, uh, you know, I noticed that how she talks about local governments and local control does sound different from polis. It's really up to the local municipalities to manage their growth, Um, but I can partner with them as a governor and incentivize them to look at old malls or big retail developments and figure out if we can rezone it to create new, cool, innovative housing um, or to create tiny home villages or to look at, um, you know, a model like Europe has where the, the units are much smaller, more efficient, like community housing. She's talking more about like a coach role. She'll be there to help cities do this if they want. Polis seems to be pushing harder on it, much firmer, uh, somewhat more detailed in his plans. So we've got the gubernatorial candidates not campaigning on housing, but it's a big issue. They realize it's a top priority for so many voters, cost of living. Then we have the first ever statewide ballot question on housing, Initiative 123. Have these two candidates, Ganahl Polis, taken a position on that ballot initiative? Do they support it? No, not that I've seen. They've not explicitly either of them endorsed or opposed this. And maybe let's uh, close out this section by just noting that, you know, these are kind of two different approaches. The gubernatorial candidates are talking about 
how to encourage housing development in general, whether it's mm-hmm. private, public, somewhere in between. And the Proposition 123 is much more focused on traditional affordable housing, subsidized affordable housing. So, uh, you know, one is build more housing in general. One is build more affordable housing specifically. Uh, not necessarily contradictory ideas, but two different approaches that we're seeing on the ballot here. Okay, so when you put all of this together, ballot initiatives, statewide candidates, governor's race, what does this year actually mean for housing in Colorado? I can't say it enough times again. This is the first time we'll see housing on the ballot statewide, which will give us a really much better sense of what the electorate thinks of a big new investment in affordable housing. Mm -hmm. It's still popping up as a topic on local ballots as well. We haven't even discussed that. And, you know, we're also hearing much more ambitious plans than usual in the governor's race, especially from Polis. So a big moment, but also not one that I don't think anybody expects is going to solve the housing shortage one way or another, because this is just a really hard issue for government because it's linked to all kinds of national and economic factors that are outside of the state's control. So leaving this big picture behind a little bit, um, I did have one more question, and I'm curious what happened to the family you introduced us to at the, the beginning of this episode. Did they ever find a home? Well, I just recently checked in with the realtor to find out the answer to that. Hey, Andy, how's it going? And I can tell you that after looking at 30 houses and drawing up 17 bids, Ooh. they found a place in Aurora for $400,000. Yeah, how did they react? How did they feel after all that? Well, extremely relieved, especially because they, they were starting to believe that the whole deal was going to fall apart. You know, after being let down deal after deal after deal because um, we kept losing to people with a bigger appraisal gap. Um, and just people who offered more, they were they were really excited to be able to finally get into their first home. And now their realtor, again, his name is Miguel Ceballos, said that the market has eased up some. There's not as much competition. Sellers are making more concessions, but it's still really tough. I mean, you said their budget was 350 and they had to go up to 400 So, And I think they could afford it, but with interest rates going up, those costs continue to climb. It's not easy right now. It may be easier to secure the contract on the home, but there's so little stock remaining for affordable, accessible houses. And one way or another, Miguel said that policymakers really need to get serious about this. You know, state lawmakers and city council members and mayors across the front range really have to start thinking about how to think about affordable housing in a different way. And for now, they are at least talking about it in a different way. This November will show uh, how far they are willing to go toward action, the electorate and politicians alike. Bed to Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Ballots are being sent in the mail this week. You can vote once you receive yours between now and Election Day, Tuesday, November 8th. And be sure to check out our voter guide at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.